Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and, Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Box Podcaster. Could you please introduce yourself? So my name is Adam Stokes, and I'm an associate professor in the School of Engineering at the University of Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. So before going to your work in soft robotics, could you please tell us about the first robots you built and what is your feeling at this point? The first robots I built and what my feeling was. Um, so the, the first soft robots that I built were when I was working as a postdoc um, with George Whitesides at Harvard, with <clears throat> other other robotics researchers that have featured in your podcast, people like uh, Robert Shepard, for example. Mm. Um, and my honest thoughts on what I thought we were doing at that time was that it was it was it was quite odd, um, quite a bizarre field to get into. My background was in electronics and electrical engineering, mm. um, and then I <clears throat> I moved into biomedical science, and then into analytical chemistry. And when I went to work for George in the US, I expected that I'd be working on chemistry projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first project that we started to work on was was about materials and it was about robotics. Um, and it was it was a you know, whole new world of things that I didn't know anything about, um, which is hugely interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting point to lead you to soft robotics. Uh, how how you shift? Uh, shaped your way to soft robotics to start this career in this this research line in particular. How this started? Uh, to, yeah, I think I think it started in a way that most things in science start, which is that um, the stories that you tell after the fact mm. are revision, revisionist and opportunistic. But the reality of how it started is that uh, I I met George in a in a very opportunistic way. And went to work for him and we started this project i came into it there'd already been some work from philip ilievsky and uh, rob shepherd and you know previous work by people like kadash ono um and when we started working on the project as i say it was a it was a it was a, a sort of new field of uh, of study for me because it built on lots of things that we'd done previously on on microfluidics um but just changed changed the scale Mm-hmm. Uh, to make things larger, change the type of materials to make things much softer, and change the application from being about moving, you know, fluids around a place to moving uh, gases around a place to inflate and deflate chambers mm-hmm. to make robots move around a place. Um, so the, the the what we were doing at the time was really, you know, pure exploration of putting some things together and seeing how they worked. You know, the sort of once you get one thing working then stacking those bits on top of one another to make something more complicated. Um, and a lot of what we were doing was really just sort of exploration. Um, it's, you know, it was a very enjoyable period of uh, messing around with stuff in the lab and seeing what we would do with it. It was structured within a big program, so we had deliverables that we needed to come up with. But the, the project was, uh, was hugely enjoyable, um, mainly because I, for one, didn't really know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So you're working in interdisciplinary projects. It is challenging and 
First of all, could you please tell us what is the current project you're running in the lab? Because it's different and interesting to be highlight where this, this interdisciplinary project ends up to serving soft robotics. Yeah, so in my lab, we, we work across a range of disciplines um, and across a range of length scales and technology mm -hmm. readiness levels. So we have projects where we look at really fundamental electrohydrodynamics, so things which have got very low consideration of use, all the way up to very large scale industrial robotic systems, which are being used uh, in the field to perform useful work um, and everything in between. So we really have three main thrusts of work that we look at. We look at fluidics uh, as, a, as a topic which includes some things to do with soft robotics and some things to do with microfluidics um, in biomedical work. We look at robotics, which includes soft robotics, but also we look at robots which are not soft. Um, mm -hmm. We look at some very large scale modular uh, self-building systems. Um, and we look at the sort of linkers between simplicity and complexity. And really all of those strands are different aspects of work that we do, which, you know, is it's broadly around biologically inspired engineering. The idea of um, taking complex systems and breaking them down into simple subunits or from the other side of things, taking simple subunits and building them up to make complex systems. Mm -hmm. um, but the, 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 all of the work that we do has really two focuses. Um, one of them is about sort of long-term applicability to solving important problems. Um, and the other one is that we always do work which has, you know, some sort of an eye on uh, the commercial or societal benefit of the work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just esoteric research for the sake of doing research. There's always, even if the timescales are a long way out, the work that we're doing always has some sort of connection back to providing a net benefit to people or mm -hmm. to society or to important problems that um, yeah. uh, the people are experiencing. That's a good point. But first of all, I would like to ask you from your perspective, how you define soft robotics? Because there's different definitions. From your perspective, how you would define a soft robotics? How you would see it as soft robotics? So I think that one of the interesting things about soft robotics is that, you know, when we first started working on soft robotics, what we were doing was looking at changing the paradigm of how robots were built, moving away from hard materials towards soft materials as a way of being able to address some limitations with existing robotic systems. Mm -hmm. we, we then started to look at things to do with, you know, hybrid systems of hybrid, hard, soft systems. Um, and, you know, when you when we tried, when you try and put a hard definition on soft robotics, like it's all about the materials, it's all about systems that are globally soft. I think you, I think you restrict it. Um, whereas a sort of, I think a more sort of holistic definition is, is more about sort of systems that are designed for um, interaction, systems that are designed with um, with compliance mm -hmm. from from the outset. And I think really the soft robotics was an interesting foray to begin with into looking at different materials. But as the field advances, then robotics and soft robotics mm -hmm. really just become robotics. And my prediction is that most of robotics in the future will be sort of indistinguishable from soft robotics. You know, most of the robotics conferences 
will end up having so much soft robotics in them mm -hmm. and most of the robotic, soft robotics conferences will end up having so much robotics in them that really it just redefines the field so it opens up a new toolbox of mm -hmm. ways of thinking about how you design systems ways of thinking about how you control systems and ways about thinking about how you can deploy robotic systems um, by using this new range of materials new range of properties that you didn't have before mm -hmm. Interesting. so i'm not really restrictive on yeah. the definition of soft robotics i think it's quite a wide and expansive field mm. but i would say the key things about you know design for interaction and design for compliance and that interaction can be within the system itself between that system and something else or between humans and that system mm -hmm. so um, i would like to ask you about what are the misconceptions about soft robotics do you think that there's something that we may misunderstood about uh, soft robotics uh, is there any misconception you think the community had um, no, I think that I think that there's a there's a misconception about robotics in general mm. and soft robotics being a subset of that, which is about the sort of the state of robotics in general, um, which is that the, the general public I think see robotics uh, as being far more advanced than it actually is, mm. uh, and I think one of the one of the things which is limited the ability for robotic systems to be deployed to have a sort of net impact on society has been around this design for interaction. Um, and soft robotics sort of addresses that and allows, will I think be one of the enabling technologies that allows robotics to get out of the research lab and out of uh, you know highly structured industrial environments and into the place where people are, where people exist. So I think the only misconception with soft robotics would be uh, in thinking that it's something different to the field of robotics, mm. whereas in actual fact, I think it's something which will just be absorbed into the field of robotics with a whole class of new people with new ways of thinking about things, ways of designing systems, ways of bringing different materials, different control architectures that weren't previously in the, the way of thinking about robotics. You know, historically, robotics came uh, primarily from mechanical engineering, mm -hmm. um, whereas you know soft robotics has really got much more of a materials science uh, and chemistry background to it, and you know, I think it's really just a way of thinking about science in general is becoming interdisciplinary as the norm, you know, especially for high-level research collaborations that people who are well experienced in one field diversify into you know, just general science and engineering, where you need to know bits about chemistry, bits about electrical engineering, bits about mechanical, to be able to perform usefully in a big team and to develop useful systems. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you about, because soft robotics is interdisciplinary, do you think it's challenging to speak in different languages? Since we have to deal with chemistry part and material and control and mechanical engineering. Do you think this is still a challenge in the field or how you read the situation of having different background working in that? Is there a challenge still exist or it's it's not exist at all? What do you think? So I think I think it can exist, and I think one of the problems there comes from people who specialize in a discipline mm. view the world through the lens of the discipline that they've become educated within, and that can be exclusive of other ways of viewing the world. 
And when you view the world through one particular lens mm. you know, with your blinkers on, then you can miss all of the other things that there are. I think that, you know, university education um, in general, when it brings in these notions of this is electrical engineering, this is mechanical engineering, this is chemistry, this is physics, I think can sometimes miss the bigger picture of mm -hmm. it's all just stuff, right? And that stuff is just the way that the way that the world is. And all you do is you have different frameworks for understanding your particular niche in the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you, when you develop systems from a systems level perspective, everything needs to be considered. So the thermodynamics needs to be considered, the mechanics needs to be considered, the kinematics, the electronic control systems, everything needs to be considered. And so what you have to do is to build teams and those teams, the way that they function usefully is to be able to communicate with one another by using each other's language. Mm -hmm. um, so something which I actively do in my in my research group is I have people who are chemists, people are physicists, oceanographers, computer scientists, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, and one of the one of the tasks that they have is being able to communicate with one another mm -hmm. and to understand each other's point of view. Um, and I think for me that's one of those sort of big exciting things about doing interdisciplinary work is just recognizing that different people view the world in a different way and that's not necessarily a bad thing it's actually a strength of doing it interdisciplinary working mm -hmm. but if you try to train people to be interdisciplinary from the outset then you can miss some of the depth in the field so i think one of the challenges is making people have sufficient breadth that they can understand and communicate with people from different disciplines but they still have depth in one area that allows them to to be useful members of that team mm -hmm. nice so I would like to ask you about what could be the open questions that haven't been yet considered by soft robotics. Do you think those questions we still didn't answer or we have to consider in, in the research, current research soft robotics? Yeah, I think there's there's a, a huge number of things to think about. I mean, this is you know one of the things about it being an exciting research field is that there's a great many more questions than there are answers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of one of the one of the things that we're looking at at the moment um, is if you in in contrast to the the traditional way of building robots, um, you know, using rigid links and systems that you can describe uh, quite simply by using you know kinematics and then using invert kinematics to do control. When you've got a system that's got an extremely large number of degrees of freedom and very, very large uh, aspects of non-linearity in the system, then it can be very challenging to develop control architectures for it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we're looking at is you know, a real change in the way that you look at how you control systems, so whether it's a robotic system or not, but taking an energy-based view of control, which really means changing the way that you look at the system from using uh, you know, mechanics in terms of, you know, simple Newtonian mechanics and looking at, you know, energy-based methods. Um, and it, it becomes a really, really interesting way of looking at it. Um, and from a control perspective, that's also a really odd way to look at systems, but I think very, very valuable. Um, so, you know, control is definitely one thing. Again, from our point of view, if we're trying to make systems that are useful and that address problems at some level, then we need to be able to you know, do rational design of that system to make something 
that is controllable and mm. which can perform a given task. And you really have two aspects of this in soft robotics, I think. You've got task-oriented work from the top level of describing what you want the system to do. And at the bottom level, you've got the palette of materials and actuators and control systems and sensors that you can build together to make a system that enables you to do that task. Mm -hmm. And the whole way through that stack, there are open challenges and open questions. Um, and all of those questions are interdisciplinary in nature. You know, there are questions about thermodynamics, questions about mechanics, questions about um, you know, control systems, questions about communications, about mm -hmm. power, um, very, very interesting and open set of questions, which I think you know, means that there's a, there's a lot of research to be done in the field. Mm -hmm. Great. So what are the challenges that you really try to solve in the moment concerning your research? What are the challenges you face already? So, well, lots of things, um, mm -hmm. because in, in the research group, it's broad uh, in terms of, like I said, the number of people that we have, the range of disciplines that they have, but also in terms of the research projects that we're currently working on, they, they, they go across a very, very broad range of things. Mm -hmm. Within soft robotics, one of the interesting things that we're playing with at the moment is uh, you know, the control of the system. And specifically for looking at addressing problems in extreme environments. So environments where you may not be able to have electronics due to a spark risk, or you may not be able to have electronics because of high radiation. And so within those environments, what we're looking at doing is using all of the benefits of soft robotics, uh, you know, being you know, hydraulically controlled or pneumatically controlled, and building control systems that use those sorts of architectures. Um, so you can piggyback on lots of work that's been done in electronics, but then do the implementation, the actual synthesis of the control system without using any electronic components at all. And for me, that's a hugely interesting uh, piece of work because it, it, it really just sort of looks at the way that the world has, the world has evolved, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, there was there was a period of time in uh, you know the, in the fifties when using fluidics for control was a very standard thing to do and there was lots of work that was done on the space shuttle you know that used fluidic control mm -hmm. fluidics then sort of died a death until it resurged with microfluidics which then really got adopted by the biomedical field and control you know, as electronic systems became better and better and better and more and more reliable, control has been siloed off almost exclusively to electronic systems. So all of the control architectures really go into electronics. But if you go back to that point when fluidics was being used, then there's lots of lessons to be learned from looking at, um, you know, alternative paths that could have developed from that point. If transistors didn't develop in the way that they did and be as good as they were, then there'd be a lot more control systems that were still run in fluidics, you know, either in hydraulics or in pneumatics. And really what we're doing is we're just looking at some of those control paradigms and looking at how you can implement them without having to use electronics, because in some very mm. niche cases, electronics just don't work. Yeah. So for me, that's a hugely interesting and, and open area study that we're working on. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. I, I would like to ask you about, because there's a recent paper about uh, how we can design a brain like is the logic use the fluid fluid gate do you think that more law is dying that's why 
I think this is emphasized that we have to come up with a fully uh, soft robotics uh, in terms of not using rigid electronics. So do you think it's possible to have this technology? Is it possible? Yeah, I mean, so we've, we've built simple robotic systems that can um, perform uh, quite a low-level task by using a fully fluidic logic control system. Mm -hmm. uh, so it can be done. The, the question really is about, you know, the utility of the system and the, the, the application. So where is it going to be used? Um, there's, there's obviously no suggestion that you would be able to make a fluidic control system that had the same complexity as a modern microelectronic processor. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's a lot of situations in which you don't need that amount of complexity or that amount of control. But what you do need is some level of control. Mm. So, so we are we are completely able to build systems that have transistors. We can stack those to build mm. logic gates. We can stack the logic gates to build, you know, memory elements, shift registers, combinational logic, and then use that to control arrays of actuators to be able to design a system that can walk or it can grasp or it can go through a range of different state behaviors um, without any electronics in the system whatsoever. But I think a real, you know, where the systems will become very useful is when you, again, you have this hybridization between, mm. you know, using the different control architectures for what they're really useful for. So only using the fluidic logic control when yeah. you need to use it. And in places where you can use electronics to provide that high level control, it's, you know, orders of magnitude uh, better to use electronics simply because of the state of readiness of um, mm -hmm. modern electronic systems. So there's a limitation for this current developed technology about microfluids at the controller. There's a limitation, do you think? I mean, it, all, it, all things are application dependent, application mm. specific. But, you know, one of the things that happened with electronics is, you know, the, the large scale integration and then very large scale integration revolution, which moved away from using sort of discrete components into mm. uh, microelectronics with all of the associated tools that allowed you to do that. But it meant that control systems moved from being just a few transistors to many billions or trillions of transistors. Mm -hmm. That only works because of you know economies of scale in terms of the market, which allows you to go very large and invest a lot of money in making things very small, and then in the technology to shrink stuff down and make things very, very small. For soft robotics you know, and the control architectures that we've been looking at so far, mm -hmm. The quest is not really one to go to that sort of level of scale down integration. It's about providing control architectures at an appropriate length scale and an appropriate uh, you know, length scale mm -hmm. to make the system useful. Right? So I think the, the quests are different, um, but you know, it, it's, um, it's something which is eminently doable and we're really at the start of the field. The thing I think which will really push the field forward is developing those associated tools which allow you to do the design of complex systems mm. using very, very simple language. And so I've got a couple of PhD students who are working on this sort of thing at the moment mm -hmm. where we can describe in very simple terms what we want the system to do at a behavioral level. And then we develop a whole stack that sits underneath it, which goes into developing the control architectures at the layout level, which can then be implemented given some process mm -hmm. um, and so you know that whole field is is 
very, very, very interesting for me at the moment. Yeah. I would like to ask you about how we would see intelligence of robotics. And out of time of that, do you think that we have to invest more in embodied intelligence and coming up with smart material like EEB technology or just going to morphological computation? How you would see intelligence in soft robotics and how you define it from your perspective? Well, I mean, I think it's a field of study in itself, defining the word intelligence. Um, and it's a, you know, really, I think when we talk about intelligence with uh, with robotic systems, we need to be slightly careful about, you know, exactly what our definition is that we work with. So, you know, it, I'll try and avoid the question because we could probably spend a whole podcast just talking about intelligence. Mm. You know, there's whole research institutes here at the University of Edinburgh where they just look at intelligence as a thing. You know, they've been studying artificial intelligence in Edinburgh since before computers were developed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the study of intelligence, I think, is a separate thing to robotics or to computers or anything like that. Mm. You know, in terms of robotic systems being intelligent, I think a lot of what people really are talking about there is about autonomy mm. and about levels of autonomy, you know, of the system being able to, um, you know, think for itself, perform decisions by itself. Um, and, you know, those degrees of autonomy, it's not always the case that a higher level of autonomy is better. Um, again, it's application dependent. Um, and a lot of it, it, you know, from a commercial perspective, depends on the appetites that the consumer base has for autonomy um, or the appetite that, you know, the regulators have for allowing very high levels of autonomy. Mm -hmm. I think in, in soft robotics, then what we're really talking about often is about actuation um, yeah. and in actuation then one of the good things about soft robotics is enabling systems to be more interactive with people for example mm -hmm. because the actuators themselves have a high degree of compliance which means that the restrictions that you place on the autonomy of the system mm -hmm. can be lessened somewhat because uh, the risk factors go down Right. So, you know, the classic example is in Big Hero 6 with Baymax. You know, Baymax uh, is a humanoid robot which moves around the environment, but he bumps into things, you know, and he's, mm. it, this, is, this is seen to be okay because he's a big, squashy, soft robot. Whereas if this was a, you know, a different type of humanoid robot, that interaction with the environment would have very high forces involved. You'd have a lot of damage to the environment. So therefore, the system designers would have designed in many, many, many more systems to stop that humanoid robot from touching things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's really one of the places where soft robotics is going to come into its own, is in allowing a relaxation of some of the, you know, collisional avoidance with robots by allowing them to interact with the environment. So we, we, we had a paper in uh, a talk in ICRA a few years ago, mm -hmm. which we put in a session that which was about avoiding collisions uh, in robotics. And we put in a paper called Embracing Collisions in Robotics, mm -hmm. because instead of spending all of our time on avoiding collisions, uh -huh. an alternative way to think about it is that there's a lot of information that you can gain from the environment when you do do collisions. Um, and if you design your system in such a way that it can physically interact with the environment and you can use that information, uh, you know, in a, in a sensible fashion, then you can actually gather a lot more information than you would do otherwise. Mm. Um, it doesn't really answer the question about intelligence, 
but I think that you know, it, when you take it from an autonomy perspective, then it's application dependent. It depends what you're making that system for uh, would tell you the degree of autonomy that you need to build into it. And that sort of equates to intelligence in some ways. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you about your thoughts about using uh, EB technology as a smart material for actuation and sensing. Do you think it's promising uh, to come up with a something workable because it still has challenges. What do you think about this technology in software robotics of developing smart material like AEB technology? So again, I'm going to slightly cop out the question because one of the ways that we think about uh, these sorts of questions are that if you design a system from a sort of systems requirement level, you describe the environment that's going to work in, you describe the tasks that it's going to perform, then you can make a rational choice mm -hmm. of the actuators that you choose. So there's a temptation in all research fields, but I think soft robotics has it uh, you know, more than most, to pick a particular technology and then push that technology regardless of whether you're using it for the right application or not. Mm -hmm. So with all of the sort of available range of actuators that you have in soft robotics, and people make new and interesting actuators all the time, you know, you can look at things like the new net actuators, voice coil actuators, things like the piano hazel actuators, mm -hmm. EAP actuators, you know, dielectrical astomer actuators. They all occupy different regions um, in a sort of, you know, the space diagram. And they all have particular advantages and disadvantages. Mm -hmm. So I think that you know EAP uh, has its place, as does DEA, as does uh, NewNets. And when you design a system, I think the important thing is making a rational choice of what the correct actuator to use would be, mm. rather than just using the actuator that your lab happens to use because that's what you do. Mm. So, I mean, that's really a sort of systems engineering answer to it but it's a lot of the, the sort of ethos that we have in in my group which is that if there's a better way of doing it a better actuator that's available then let's use that actuator rather than just going ahead and using what it is that we've always used you know and i think that's a sort of you know an engineering way of of doing things rather than you know just picking a favorite technology and just exploring the space that it could be used for it's really just a different way of doing things one is about sort of technology push and the other one is about sort of technology pull mm -hmm. no point so i would like to ask you either whether there's upcoming project you uh, are involved in interesting project you you are you're doing in the coming uh months. oh yeah we have, we have lots of interesting projects mm -hmm. so a lot of the work that we're doing at the moment is um in industrially funded mm -hmm. And so we look at systems that um, are being used offshore um, in the energy industry and systems that are used um, in the sea. Yeah. We're looking at systems um, that have utility in nuclear decommissioning. Mm -hmm. And again, because these systems are um, industrially led and applications focused, then what we need to, what we're doing really with these systems is going to a higher technology readiness level than we have previously done with fundamental research projects. Mm -hmm. So really we're sort of treading this line between 
uh, high technology readiness level, uh, which is useful, and low technology readiness level, which is interesting, but yet to find utility. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in the group, we, we, we work across both of those um, ends of the technology readiness level. Mm -hmm. but, you know, in the work that we're doing in nuclear decommissioning in particular, there's the system that we're building is a very, very, very large system. None of it is soft, but lots of the design principles have been influenced from the way of thinking about how you make soft robotics. Mm -hmm. um, and in the work that we're doing in, you know, subsea and work that we're doing on, um, you know, industrial Internet of Things sensors, a lot of the, uh, again, design thinking on how we make those systems comes from the soft robotics way of thinking about robotics as opposed to the robotics way of thinking about robotics, mm -hmm. which is just to say that it gives an outside view on how to approach the system design differently. Great. So I would like to ask you, what is the most promising project have been done so far by other groups in soft robotics? Well, that's, I mean, <clears throat> There's, there's so many cool things that people are working on. It's difficult to it's difficult to pick one. And obviously, I have uh, I have a range of biases. But yeah. for for me, when I when I go to, when I look around the world at the work that people are doing, it's hugely interesting to see the new types of actuators that people are working on. And mm -hmm. soft robotics as a field has really focused a lot on actuation. Starting to look at you know, other aspects of the system, including, you know, power sources and control and sensors and feedback. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could basically take, you know, a list of all of the, the sort of big names that there are in soft robotics and go through all of the technologies that they're working on because they all are starting to fill in these different, um, these different aspects. Um, so, I mean, I think it'd be difficult to pick one uh, because there's, there's so many different things that people are working on. There's a lot of really interesting innovative work that's coming out from people mm -hmm. in north america and in italy and in korea mm. and you know all over the world there's some very 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 interesting stuff that's coming along nice so i would like to ask you about how you would see soft robotics in the future you have any thoughts or image in your mind just you would see it in the future and do you think really something concerning you in the long run visit really challenges could could face soft robotics yeah, so, I mean, again, I sort of said this earlier on, but um, to reiterate it, I think that soft robotics as a field at the moment is is something which has been very sort of embryonic, is now developing very, very well. And really what it's doing is it's aligning with the world of robotics uh, to the point where I think that in the next few years, probably the next five years, the separation between soft robotics and robotics um, will become very, 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 very uh, mm -hmm. indistinguishable from one another. Most of the big robotics conferences, I think, will have so much soft robotics in them that it'll be hard to draw a line between them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the point at which, you know, soft robotics has really made its mark because we, we can look at that from the point of view of new types of actuation mechanisms, new designs for compliance and that sort of thing that keeps it very much in uh, the world of you know robotics for industrial um, or uh, you know automation type tasks mm -hmm. but i think the real promises of soft robotics is bringing in new 
types of um, research that really wouldn't make it into the robotics mainstream otherwise. So looking at things like biohybrid robots, mm -hmm. you know, bringing uh, biologically active materials, um, you know, it, all things have been done in sci-fi previously, you know, that, you know, Terminator as an example, you know, is sort of, you know, this robot in the center of it with living tissue on the outside of it. But all of that research on the intersection between, you know, biology and chemistry and engineering uh, with informatics and computer science sitting on top mm -hmm. of it, I think really that is the promise of soft robotics, which is that inclusive nature of how you design systems with some degree of autonomy that can perform useful tasks. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, that that sort of way of thinking about research in robotics Mm -hmm. is a sort of wouldn't really come about unless there was this you know side field of soft robotics that had developed yeah so now to come to another question if your PhD student come and want to, to launch a startup in soft robotics what are the criteria to launch a successful soft robotic company given that we have a challenges still in the in this field what are the criteria to have a successful company in soft robotics what do you think could be the key elements I think that the, the criteria for launching a successful company in, in any field, whether it's in soft robotics or mm -hmm. otherwise, is uh, understanding you know, the customer and who's going to pay the money. Mm. Because otherwise, if you, just, if you just work at it purely from a technology point mm. of view, then that's to ignore the requirements of the customer base that's going to fund the company. You know, companies are defined by how much money they take in, the profit that they make, you know, the sort of thing, making the customer happy, making the shareholders happy. So I think if you work at it from a customer perspective, then, you know, there's no real difference in a soft robotics company than there is in any other company. I think that one of the differences with a soft robotics company would be that the customer base Mm -hmm. would be a different customer base than you would normally have for a robotics company. Mm -hmm. Robotics companies that do automation robotics, you know, their customer would be, you know, a company that um, have an automation line, they're trying to make, you know, cars, or they're trying to make a product of some sort. And they want to sort of, you know, offset some of their um, costs that they would have on personnel, move it into capital expenditure, and then use robots to be able to do repeatable automation tasks. And, you know, other types of field robots that, that exist, you know, drones or legged robots or field robots, the customer there might be, uh, you know, someone who's doing asset um, inspection or asset maintenance. So they want information on that asset and it's better to use a robot, maybe from safety concerns or again, maybe from operational expenditure. Mm -hmm. I think in soft robotics, the customer base is likely to be much, much larger because you can bring in you know, the general public because those systems typically would have design for interaction, which means that your barrier to deploying that technology to a wider customer base mm -hmm. is probably much, much lower and the customer base itself is much, much larger. Mm -hmm. So I think really in a soft robotics company, one of the things about it is that you really have a a, a different market, you know, a bigger market potentially, um, because some of these barriers to being able to deploy robots um, are lowered because of this sort of inherent compliance. So, how you read the current situation of the robotics in the market? How we, do you think there is a, a strong presence now, or because I don't know how we, we can perceive the 
customers think that software product will be interesting in, in different uh, um, application. That's just we know how soft robotics ink, uh, software grippers. But I don't know what you how you read it uh, nowadays. How you think? So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, if you take Soft Robotics Inc. Um, as an example, that's a company that came out of mm -hmm. um, came out of Harvard, um, and they have technology which is uh, you know based upon some of the original Munet designs. Mm -hmm. The technology push there um, was that there must be something that you can do that's useful with squashy grippers. Mm. The, the pull came from solving problems that other robotic grippers um, are not suited for, you know, so picking up soft fruit or picking up, you know, bakery goods, this sort of thing, where if you try and do that with other robotic grippers, then you have to have a huge focus on visual feedback, servoing control, all sorts of really rapid control loops on the end of the gripper. Mm -hmm. um, and the soft robotics you know, way of doing things is a hybrid system that uses the best of both worlds. You know, it uses a robotic arm to be able to do precise positioning, and it uses the gripper on the end to provide the compliance. So <clears throat> again, I think what that is really is just uh, an example where the customer base for that is exactly the same as as it as would be for any uh, industrial automation robotics uh, company. But what they've been able to do is to identify uh, a particular niche. Mm -hmm. uh, and bring in another, bring in you know um, a, a bigger market where you can use these these other types of grippers. So you know that, that I think is 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 interesting in itself because it allows you to it, it has allowed uh, Soft Robotics Inc. to look at how they can solve problems for you know mm -hmm. a slightly larger market than they had previously. Mm -hmm. If you go back to Big Hero Six for a moment, you know you look yeah. at things like you know, humanoid robots or robots that are designed yeah. for interaction with people. Yeah. Um, you, you know, th there are there are some systems that are starting to come out where um, they have that sort of, uh, you know, that sort of focus on interaction between the robot itself and the person. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think that there, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's, it's starting, I think, that it, it's we're not there yet. We don't see a sort of mass market um, mm -hmm. uptake, but I don't think that's to do with the promise of soft robotics. I think it's just to do with uh, the fact that we're, you know, it's just building confidence in yeah. um, in investors and mm -hmm. in the customers that you know this is the sort of technology that they should be adopting. Yeah, great. So now I would like to ask about AI. Do you think that AI have to be integrated with soft robotics? Do you think it is a solution for the problem if we want to activate something or something? How do you see this integration? Is it really necessary to have AI in soft robotics? Or we can have another solution for coming up with different strategies of actuation and sensing? So I guess, again, that depends on the definition of AI. Mm. I think AI is such a broad term yeah. that um, it's difficult to answer the question with any specificity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, you can look at things to do with machine vision, you can look mm -hmm. at things to do with, you know, solving nonlinear problems, yeah. you can look at neural networks, you can, there's a whole range of different things that fall under that sort of banner of, yeah. of AI. Um, so I think it's, it's quite a difficult question to answer because I think it depends on mm -hmm. the caveat of what do you mean by AI. Mm. 
Yeah, it depends. Uh, just uh, in case of like having morphological computation or in, in model intelligence. So I think that's why I'm asking you. Do you think we have to come up with solution of using like perception? Uh, we have to go to AI and perception or just coming up with different solution in terms of the enhancing the capabilities uh, of the body like in material. So so I think if you if we, if you stick with embodied intelligence and morphological computation as as concepts that are interesting to think about, I think that one of the reasons why those phrases and the, that sort of those sorts of fields of study are interesting are because of this change in the way that you think about how you control a system. Mm -hmm. So exactly as I said before, you know when you, typically when you design a robot, then your control will all live in you know, in the computer, right? You know, you'll have some sort of uh, behavioral level representation mm -hmm. of task, you'll have action representations, goes down to some sort of hardware abstraction layer, yeah. and you very, very well described uh, ranges of motions that are performed by the actuators that you have. Whereas in, you know, the way of thinking about things with morphological computation and embodied intelligence, then what you do is you distribute that control between the system itself uh, and the environment. Um, and so the environment is physically involved back with whatever computation is being performed. Mm. Um, and so I, th I think it's a, it's a academically hugely interesting field of study. Mm. And I think that, you know, again, it comes back to that keyword, which is about interaction, which is, you know, this sort of idea of sharing the task between the control system in the device itself the extremities of the system, you know, the actuators or whatever the compliant interfaces are, and also the reaction from the environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that whole, that sort of holistic way of thinking about robotic systems, being them soft or not, is, is, a, is you know, enormously interesting and enormously fruitful area of research. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, it comes back to... Uh, Describing the utility of the system, what's it going to be useful for, how's it going to be used, what task is it performing, what's the environment that it's performing within. Um, and so I think, you know, all of the fundamental work that you can do in looking at embodied intelligence and morphological computation mm -hmm. eventually will end up as, you know, design heuristics and subsystems that you can include into some sort of robotic solution that solves a well-defined task. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think, you know, that it's that sort of connection between basic research and, uh, you know, applied engineering. Yeah. Uh, the, the timelines could be could be relatively long for it, but I think a very, very, very fruitful area of research for making robotic solutions to problems um, useful. Oh, great. So now for more philosophic questions. Do you think ego is important for a researcher in his research or her research? Ego? Yeah. Um, so I guess it depends what you mean by ego. So again, this is a sort of academic way of qualifying the question. Mm -hmm. But you know, if um, if we think about it as uh, you know somebody's ability or somebody's confidence to trust that their way of thinking about uh, a problem in a different way um, is likely to bear fruit. Yeah. Then I think you know. Then you touch upon one of the things about academia, which makes it um, makes it interesting. Which is that if you're if you're working on solutions to a problem, which are the same as everybody else is working yeah. on, 
uh, and you're not working on something which is strange and esoteric and would possibly fail, then um, you're not really doing your job properly. You know, one of the things about academia is that you have the privilege to be able to explore new and strange and interesting ways of doing things which go against mm -hmm. you know, established techniques and established norms. I think ego comes into it more as a sort of you know suspension of disbelief or mm. confidence that based upon your previous record, it's likely that what you're doing now will either bear fruit or will be able to be diversified into something else which will be which will be useful um, as you go forward. But you know I think that you know there's there's a great um, comic it might have been by mm -hmm. XKCD or something like this, but it shows a metronome. Um, which describes the life of an academic mm -hmm. and the metronome swinging between two positions, one of which points to reckless overconfidence, mm -hmm. and at the other end it points to um, you know crippling imposter syndrome. Yeah. And I think you know for academics that cycle of you know being very bullish and saying I don't know the answer to this, I don't know how it's going to come out, but I expect that it's going to be okay. I think that's one way that you could think about ego in the question that you answered there mm -hmm. and then you know it's tempered by the fact that you know then you can get results back from experiments and you can lose confidence but then academia works out because it's revisionist and opportunistic and you find a way to use the results that you have to solve a different problem um so i think you know ego in that way of thinking about it is probably just the confidence that experienced academics have to see opportunity in all things um, as opposed to just giving up mm -hmm. so i think it's if, if that's the interpretation of it then i think it's essential mm -hmm. interesting so did you ever design a robot and you have it in your home something you work it and regular daily basis and ending up in your home using if there is any robots you developed and using at your yeah. home Robots that I use in my home. Um, no, I haven't designed any anything which you describe as a robot. Yeah. Um, I've designed things like, you know, CNC machines yeah. um, that you can use for. You know, I've, I've got a CNC machine that we built, um, which you can use to make coasters and you know bits of bits of uh, woodworking projects and stuff like that. You know, which is uh, automation in some way. You know, you can design something and get the machine to build it for you. Um, but it's it's not cutting edge robotics, you know, it's very, you know, very established techniques. Um, no, I don't have any, I don't have any robots in okay. particular in my, in my house, but I mean, that in itself is maybe an interesting thing, which is that um, most of the robotics researchers that you will mm -hmm. talk to, um, whilst they extol the virtues of robotics, mm -hmm. uh, typically will not be the early adopters that have robots, you know, themselves, <laughs> you know, uh, because the, the problems that you might want a robot to solve are actually still open research questions. Yeah. If you take the example of the, the CNC machine that I was talking about and couple it with a system that can perform a useful task, like a, a vacuum cleaner, for example, mm -hmm. The, you know, the, the sort of system level design of those things is very, very similar. You know, perform rastering type motions, go through pre-prescribed routes, use an array of sensors to be able to change, you know, the, uh, the path on the fly, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the, the, 
the the cost of a, of a robotic vacuum cleaner system like that, um, you know, probably far outweighs for people on academic yeah. pay. You know, the value of just picking up a vacuum cleaner and doing doing uh, the hoovering yourself. But mm. I think that in itself is sort of one way of thinking about you know a barrier that needs to be overcome for the adoption of robotics, which mm. is that they have to be able to do things significantly better than we can do them. Mm. <laughs> they need to be able to be unintrusive and do them in the background. And they need to be cheap enough that people are going to adopt them to do, you know, daily living tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, home automation or home tasks for robots, I think, is probably not the primary focus area for most robotics research. Mm-hmm. You know, at the moment, I think you have to go to sort of smaller scale, higher value uh, applications than you know doing home automation tasks. Hmm. Do you think that we have to come up with regulation or ethics about using soft robotics in particular? Do you have any thoughts about this regard, the ethical aspect or regulation? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with with any robotic system, uh, and it will be exactly the same with soft robotic systems, in in order to, you know, in order to make it useful, mm-hmm. then it's going to have to meet a number of criteria. One of them is that you're going to have to be able to verify the behavior of that system in, mm-hmm. you know, a range of different uh, environments, a range of different edge cases. And, you know, a lot of good sci-fi has been written around <coughs> robotic systems when they go wrong. I think the other one is, you know, around regulation. If you're going to use a robot to perform a useful task, mm-hmm. then that robot will have to be, you know, underwritten or insured or something of that sort of type um and for 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 sort of, you know anything where you really want a robot to perform a very very useful task mm-hmm. those are going to be some of the biggest barriers you know is verifying the system uh, operation uh you know using things like formal methods or whatever but actually being able to verify the system against a requirements capture and specification mm-hmm. and then also using all of that to be able to ensure that you can underwrite or ensure or guarantee that the system is going to perform uh, in the way that you expect and those are going to be some of the biggest barriers to uptake and mm-hmm. utility for any robotic system oh, great. so we come in soft robotics yeah. is probably just a little bit more tricky because some of the elements are non-linear. Some of them have hysteresis. Some things yeah. don't really know all of the all of the corner cases to it. So it's um, it's slightly more complicated. Exactly. Yeah. So we're going now to the end of our podcast. I would like to ask you two final questions. As a PhD supervisor, what are the main qualities you're looking for as a student? Are you looking for a skills or just a trait? What a criteria are you looking for in your students? <laughs> Do you mean in recruitment or by yeah, the time joining your issue? your lab? What is when you recruit a student? What you're looking for is a skill or just trait? What are the main qualities you're looking for? I think the main thing that I'm interested in is somebody having a sort of open an open point of view, an open mind, mm. uh, and a flexibility to be able to understand different ways of thinking about the world, um, because. Because we run such an interdisciplinary lab, then it's I, I, I sort of perform a say, the same sort of thing um, as as happened to me in George Whiteside's lab. Mm-hmm. I went into I went in to meet with George, and he asked me what my skill set was, asked me what I was interested in, 
And then he told me they'd be working on something completely different. Mm. And when I challenged him on it, and I said to him, you know, I really want to work on microfluidics. He said, but the thing is, you know about that. Mm. And what you don't know about is all this other stuff. And so what it allows you to do is this sort of translational innovation, getting electrical engineers to work on material science projects, getting chemists to work on um, you know, physics projects. I think you, you get sort of interesting translational innovation. So one of the things that one of the major things I'm looking for is an openness to uh, to learn, to see different ways of thinking about things, um, and to be just sort of agile and flexible in, in mindset. Mm -hmm. Great. So lastly, what are the best advices have been given to you that really was changing for you as a researcher in your um, academic life? Do you think that's a best advice and you think that it could worth to share with our audience? Um, so there's a range of different ways to answer that, but um, probably the, the single most important piece of advice that I've been given by anybody is just to remember that um, when, when you die, your research grants will not be at your funeral. Your papers won't be at your funeral. Your H-index won't, won't be with you at your funeral. But mm. the people who will be there will be your friends and family and people that you have <clears throat> interacted with over the years. And so if you focus purely on your scientific career to the detriment of all of the other things that make you a human being, um, then you're sort of less of a human being than you would be otherwise. Mm -hmm. So make space in your life for your friends and your family um, and enjoy, the, enjoy your life around academia mm -hmm. rather than to the exclusion of all other things. Wow, that's a great advice. So if there is any words that you would like to uh, tell to the community, last words. Last words to the soft robotics community? Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll probably have to edit if this. If you have any. I'll start to think about this. Words to the soft robotics community. We'll just have a think about that one for a moment. If you have any, just final words. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, I think that um, soft robotics is an, a sort of new and interesting field that's inclusive of lots of other disciplines. And I think that one of the interesting challenges for people in soft robotics is to is to look at this sort of translation mm. between the, the way that the soft robotics community think about problems, think about inheriting solutions from you know, biological inspiration, mm -hmm. and then translating all of that over to uh, applications focus and integration with robotics as a whole. Uh, you know, so thinking about task thinking about systems, thinking about integration, uh, thinking about energy, rather than just a focus on actuation and compliance, because actuation and compliance are necessary, mm -hmm. but not sufficient conditions to make a useful system that yeah. can address an important problem. That's a good point. Thanks so much, Professor Adam. And on behalf of IEEE Soft Robotics, I would like to thank you for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you.